Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Uh, the music started, so did the show. We join you every Monday afternoon to tear down the strongholds of the enemy, to rejoice in the truth, especially to rejoice in the doctrine, to have joy uh, in the teaching of the Lord Jesus. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and coming to you live there in St. Louis and all over the world on KFUO. This is our plot today. we got three segments, so we're going to take the first one and talk about the Holy Spirit. You know, I used to think, when I was wandering on the edges of the Lutheran Church, I used to think that uh, that the Lutherans were light on the Holy Spirit, uh, that, they, that the Lutherans were, uh, that they didn't talk enough about the Holy Spirit, that the evangelicals and even the charismatics, they, they knew the doctrine of the Holy Spirit while the Lutherans just talked about Christ. Is that true? We're going to talk about that for a few uh, for a few minutes, and then we're going to have Pastor Brian Flammy, pastor uh, from uh, Roswell, New Mexico. He's going to join us to bring about some theological curiosities. We'll see what he's got on his mind. He was, when I talked to him this morning, going through a list of the most curious things that he had to talk about, and then I've got a question for him. I think if we get to it, how did the Holy Spirit create faith in the Old Testament? That is what is ahead for you. So... Uh, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. I remember, and there was a, a kind of a number of years in my own life when I was wandering around, again, on the edges of the Lutheran Church. I had kind of one foot in the liberal Lutheran Church and one foot firmly planted in the evangelical church, Calvary Chapel, the Southern Baptist churches, and other sort of campus ministries, kind of uh, light, charismatic churches. I remember doing a spiritual gift survey, if you remember those. Those were popular a while back. A spiritual gift survey, which indicated that I had the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. The one gift that I didn't have was the gift of being a pastor. So I don't know how accurate that thing actually was. But uh, I remember that we would have services after the service where we would go afterburn, that we'd called it, and we would speak in tongues, pray in the language of angels as we understood them. And we even traveled in those days to some more radical Pentecostal churches where we saw some of the manifestations of of being slain in the Spirit, where people were knocked down. People got what they called holy laughter. They were barking like dogs uh, and uh, rolling around on the floor and all of this sort of thing. Some of you, no doubt, have seen that. Some of you have maybe even experienced some of these things yourself. And you think, what? What are we to make of them? What do we make of this? And is it true that this is how the Holy Spirit would manifest himself in the church today? And if so, can we say that the Lutherans who don't have this, these manifestations of the Spirit, who, who don't have the speaking in tongues as part of their church service and so forth, can we say that they are void of the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a lot to talk about this, and especially since we had Pentecost yesterday, 50 days after Jesus uh, arose from the dead, ten days after he ascended into heaven, the day that he sent the Holy Spirit to uh, to his apostles gathered there in Jerusalem, and they went out, and this is going to be the key thing, the apostles went out, marked by the Holy Spirit, with the divided tongues of f- fire over their heads, and they went out and they preached. Now, now I want to I just say, and I think I can make this bold claim, that when the Holy Spirit is working, the Word of God is being preached. That, that is how we know where the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit was never manifest in these sort of ecstatic uh, uh, ways in the Scriptures. 
Rather, the Holy Spirit was manifest by the preaching of God's word. But this is what Jesus says, by the way, in John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, the Spirit goes where it, where it wills. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where he comes from. You don't know where he goes. But you hear the sound of him. Now, I, I remember, and dear listener, I'd like you to consider this. I, I remember uh, back in these old evangelical kind of light Pentecostal days that, that I would judge the presence of the Holy Spirit not by hearing the sound, but rather by a certain feeling. I, I felt close to the Spirit. I was, I was warm. We, we used to have what we called Holy Spirit goosebumps. You would be there in the service and you would you know get get goosebumps and you'd say there that that is the whole the presence of the holy spirit but that is not how our dear lord jesus has taught us to look for or identify the presence of the holy spirit jesus says you don't know where he comes from you don't know where he's going but you hear the sound of him so how do we identify where the holy spirit is namely we we hear him and we hear him in the preaching of the word now, I would like to suggest that this is exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 2. As the, apostles, uh, as the apostles are there gathered in the upper room, and, they, and, they, and they're afraid to go out. For some reason, they're, you know, they're, Jesus has ascended, and they're afraid. But then uh, they're waiting, as Jesus commanded them, for the power that will come on high, and, and then they will be his witnesses. And sure enough, it happens. The Holy Spirit comes, and they go and preach. And this is the main thing to get on Pentecost, is that all of the people are astonished. They hear these Galileans preaching in their own language, and it says, The wonderful works of God. This, this modern manifestation of speaking in tongues of kind of speaking in all these ecstatic languages, is not what happened on Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 2, the people heard what was being preached, they understood what was being preached in their own language, and they were able to believe. In fact, the text says they were cut to the heart, and they said, what must we do to be saved so that Peter can say, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, every one of you, and you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And this is for you and for your children and for everyone who's far off. So that when the Holy Spirit came, the word of God was preached. Now, Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, gives us a very, very clear picture of what the Holy Spirit will do. This is John 16, verse 5 and following. Jesus says, Now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, Jesus, in a very simple, very clear way, gives us, uh, gives us expectations of what the work of the Holy Spirit will be. Now, this is really quite wonderful. He, he doesn't leave us to guess. You know, he does, Jesus doesn't leave us to, you know, look around in the, in the landscape of, of modern Christianity in America and throughout the world and, and see all of these people who are claiming to be the beneficiaries of the Holy Spirit's work and say, was well, that what the Holy Spirit does or is this what the Holy Spirit does or how should I look for? How should I identify? How should I know where the Holy Spirit is working? Jesus tells us. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to have three jobs. 
He's going to do three things. He's going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, the first is really quite wonderful and, and easy to understand. He'll convict the world of sin. That means the Holy Spirit will preach the law. He'll, he'll hold up God's commandments like a mirror and say, here is where you have failed. Here's where you've come up short. Here's where you have done wrong. Here's where you are a sinner. And, and not just in our external sins, but especially in our internal sins and even in our sinfulness. One of the great mysteries of the Christian faith, and we don't want to get too far afield for this, but one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith is that the thing that should be most obvious, that we are sinners, is in fact not that obvious to us. I mean, we just, we miss it about ourselves. It's like, it's like looking at your face in a mirror when the light is turned off. I remember one time, ooh, this is some story. This is, I was at the seminary and a, another seminarian and I were there talking. It was after church one afternoon and uh, I still remember we were there by his apartment standing by his van and we heard this crash down the street. So we ran over there and there was this guy under a tree, under a motorcycle. And I, we, we both ran over to him. He had crashed his bike into the tree there. And I asked him, are you all right? And his answer to me was, I don't know. I can't feel my legs. Can you imagine it? This guy had crashed this motorcycle into the tree, and he had broken his neck. He was so, and, and this is the point, he was so profoundly injured that he couldn't feel how injured he was. He had, he had done so much damage that he didn't know how broken he was. I mean, you can imagine two men who fall off a ladder and one breaks his leg, but another breaks his leg and breaks his back. And the one who breaks his leg can feel the pain of it. Ah, I can't walk. But the other guy who breaks his leg and breaks his back, he can't feel the pain of the broken leg. And he says, oh, I think I'm fine. Just give me a hand up. Well, that's, that's our condition. We are so broken in our sin, so, so corrupt in our sinfulness that, that the, the depth of our sin has to be revealed to us by the preaching of the, of the law, by the work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says that's the work that the Holy Spirit will do. He'll convict the world of sin. And then he says, and he'll convict the world of righteousness. So the Holy Spirit will tell the world, will preach to the world, the righteousness of Christ. He says, he'll preach the world of righteousness because I go to my Father. The Holy Spirit, because Jesus has died and has raised and has ascended into heaven and now stands in the heavenly courtroom interceding for us and pleading his blood on our behalf, because the Holy Spirit has done this, uh, because Jesus has done this, now the Holy Spirit is making it known throughout the earth so that the Holy Spirit is preaching the gospel, the righteousness of Christ, the love of God for us in Christ. It is an amazing thing to me. And I, I don't know, I mean, you could never believe this unless the Holy Spirit would promise it in the gospel. Even there, we struggle to believe it, that the Lord gives to us the righteousness of Christ. I normally think, you know, we do, we do this with the confirmands. We, 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 we have them imagine that all their sins are written there on the chalkboard in front of the class. And everything they've done wrong, every commandment they've broken, every sin that they've committed, and that's written there on the board. Oh, man, can you imagine the shame of it all? Everyone can see all of our sins, and we say, what is forgiveness? And they, and they all rightly say, erase the board. Now, that's true. That's, that is what forgiveness of sins is. All the things that we've done wrong are forgotten. They're cast aside. They're thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you, says the Lord. But that's only the first part of justification. It's not only that the Lord takes away all the bad that we have done. 
But he then gives to us the perfection of Jesus, the righteousness of Christ. Everything that Jesus did in his active and in his passive obedience, all of his perfection, all of his keeping of God's law, that is imputed to our account. It's what, it's what the old theologians called the great exchange, and it comes from this beautiful verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. So Jesus takes on our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When you believe in Jesus, it's not even that the innocence of Adam and Eve is restored to you or the perfection of Adam and Eve before the fall is given back to you. No, it's more than that. When you, can you believe this? When you believe in Jesus, the righteousness of God, that's what the text says, the righteousness of God is given to you. Now, this is something also that we could never believe unless the Holy Spirit would reveal it to us. And so, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and of righteousness. Now, we, at this point, looking at the threefold work of the Holy Spirit, we, we might say, well, that's enough. I mean, what more, what more can the Holy Spirit do than convict the world of sin and convict the world of righteousness? Uh, then Jesus says, here's the third thing, that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of judgment. Now, we, we say, oh, boy, I mean, we had a, a nice law, and then we had really nice gospel, and it looks to us, as soon as Jesus says judgment, that we're, now, we're going back to the, now we're going back to the law. I mean, now we're, going back, uh, now we're going back to the work of Moses. Now we're going back to the work of condemnation and showing us our sin. Judgment, that sounds pretty bad, but Jesus explains it beautifully in verse 10. Excuse me, in verse 11 of John chapter 16, he says, He will convict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. <laughs> Did you get, I mean, you guys and me, we were thinking as soon as Jesus says that he'll convict the world of judgment, that the judgment that he's talking about is our judgment, our condemnation, the judgment that we deserve for our sin. But Jesus says, No, no, he'll convict the world of judgment because the devil's been judged. <laughs> The devil has been cast down. The devil has been bound so that he can deceive the nations no more. He is the strong man who stood on his goods and they were in peace, but the stronger has come and has cast him out so that the devil can no longer stand before God in heaven and accuse you. For this reason, this is 1 John chapter 5, verse 8, for this reason the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Or my, my favorite, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, just as we partake of flesh and blood, Jesus partook of the same so that through his death, he might destroy him who has the power of death and set us free who have been all our lifetime in bondage to the fear of death. So that Jesus, now can you imagine, Jesus has destroyed the devil. Jesus is the ruler of this world has been cast down. And the Holy Spirit comes to us to make that known. Now these three things we cannot know by looking around. We can't know that we are profound sinners deserving of God's wrath. We cannot know that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. We cannot know that the devil has been cast down except for that the Holy Spirit makes it known to us. That is his work to make that known to us and he does it in the preaching of the law and the gospel. So how do you know where the Holy Spirit is? You know where the Holy Spirit is when you hear God's word preached. When you hear law and gospel put forth clearly, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Not to make people fall over in an ecstatic frenzy, not to make people speak in a language that nobody can understand. That's all pagan stuff. The Holy Spirit comes to give us the forgiveness of sins and to bring us to everlasting life. Ah. So where do you go to find the Holy Spirit? 
You go to where the law and gospel is preached in its fullness. I'm Pastor Brian Wolf. You're listening to Cross Defense. That's a little monologue on the Holy Spirit. If you've got questions about that, you can send it in to me, I think, on Twitter, B. Wolfmuller, at B. Wolfmuller. KFUO Radio is the Twitter handle. Stephanie can probably check on that. We're going to go to the break now, and we're going to come back with Pastor Flammy, who's going to have, I don't know, I don't know what he's going to have. He's going to have something to throw into the conversation, and we'll go from there. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This week on the Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah. We'll hear from a Mercy Medical team that just returned from Sierra Leone and talk about the heritage and future of classical Lutheran education. We'll meet one of the most loved team members for Falcon Baseball at Concordia University, Wisconsin, and we'll learn more about millennials and the church. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO, underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. Hi, this is Bart Day, President and CEO of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. For the last 40 years, LCEF has had the humble privilege of supporting the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. As we celebrate this milestone in the life of our organization, I wanted to take a moment to recognize all the individuals, congregations, schools, and organizations who serve to fulfill the mission of making the love of Christ known to our communities and the world. We look forward to another 40 years of partnership. Visit us at lcef.org to learn more. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV... We're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog and new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Welcome back to Cross Defense. It's Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Hosted you this Monday afternoon talking about, talking about theology, the best thing in the world. I was talking to someone yesterday and they said, I'm just kind of bored with life, just kind of. Blah. Nothing seems, to, you know, nothing seems to have life or color in it. What should I do? And I said, read theology. It is the well that does not run dry. It is the joy that keeps on giving. It is the greatest gift of all. And so that's what we're talking about on Cross Defense, this great joy theology. And to do that, I think I've got on the line with me Pastor Brian Flammy of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, how are you? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Good. Hey, I heard you have a zoo down there that you're collecting at the house. It's like a arachnid branch that you got the scorpions and the tarantulas. What else, what else is going on down there at the Casa Tarantula, de Flammy? Scorpions. In fact, we have had a lot of scorpions lately. Uh, some big, some small. None of the scorpions have stung us yet, though, so we're thankful. Uh, we also have antelope that like to eat 
the flowers that bloom off of the yucca plants in our front yard. We had three of them outside our front window uh, just on Sunday, just yesterday. So that was fun I, to look at. I think there's something about this. I don't know if you that all of the profits come from the desert. So you know, I mean Moses. Had his forty years in the desert. All, all the pro- anyway, all the prophets come from the desert. So that's a, that is joy. That is you know, I still love the smell of New Mexico. I miss we had we were there for twelve years. Carrie was all the time in New the Mexico. The smell of alkaline dust and yeah. uh, baking dirt. I miss it. Down yeah, there. I miss it. Yeah. Well, uh, you, what do you got for us? Uh, we did you hear any of that Holy Spirit stuff that we were talking about before the break, or did you come in late? It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. I, I think <laughs> I could pretty much put together what you would have said anyway. Yeah, um, I know it. I know. So, it. Okay. The Holy Spirit gives you the forgiveness of sin, sins, not uh, other languages. I think it's probably something like that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. So, what do you got to throw into the mix here? <laughs> I have three things because I don't know enough about any single thing to sound smart about it. So I'm going to talk a little bit, maybe about three things, and uh, to get people interested in maybe doing their own research. The first thing is the Judaizing Calvin, which is a work that was written by uh, Igidius Hunnius, Igidius Hunnius. And uh, it's a polemical piece that he wrote back in the 16th century against the Calvinists and their interpretation of the Old Testament. And it turns out that among the Lutherans and the Calvinists, uh, they came to heads, or, or they came to, uh, what, how do you say this? They butt heads all the time over how they should read the Old Testament. Um, the Calvinists, for whatever reason, thought that, in fact, there is a primary sense to the Scriptures that has to do with the immediate context of the Jews themselves. And then, by extension, those things uh, were then called prophecies and said about Jesus. Whereas the Lutherans contended, no, 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 there are... Tr- there are these prophecies concerning the person and work of Christ that are crystal clear in the Old Testament. We're guided into that conclusion by the evangelists and apostles themselves, and they don't speak about Jesus in an extended sense, but in a primary way, and then by extension, everything else. Okay, so let me, say, I, let me, so let me press on this a little bit, because one of the things that I've noticed a lot is that... Um, you know, I, uh, let me back up two steps. I used to think that there was kind of two ways to read the Bible. You kind of had a conservative way of reading the Bible and a liberal way of reading the Bible. And, th- and that was kind of how it divided up. The conservative way is the Bible is true. It's inspired and errant and fallible, God's Word and so forth. The liberal way would be to say that the Bible contains God's Word, um, uh, the, the, but that it's not all. It also contains human words, human politics, human error, and that main re- way of reading the Bible comes to us from the higher critics uh, from Germany in the mid 19th century, where they were teaching us all this. You know, the reason rules over uh, uh, the scriptures. But what? But what I've been noticing lately is that even amongst those who read the Bible in a conservative way, there's there's kind of two ways, especially to read the Old Testament. And there's and there's a there's a Christian way and then there's a Jewish way of reading the Old Testament, and the Jewish way of reading the Old Testament is to say, well, the doctrines that Christians hold to, like the doctrine of the Trinity, or the doctrine of the two natures of Christ, that Christ is both God and man, the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement that the, that the Messiah would die for the sins of the people, that that was. 
maybe hidden like under a rock in the Old Testament, but it wasn't the main thing of the Old Testament. That's the that's the sort of Jewish way of reading the Old Testament. And that is very common amongst even conservative Christian readers. Even those who say that the Bible is God's word, that they, but they read the Bible like they read the Old Testament like Moses wouldn't have confessed the Holy Trinity or like Adam and Eve wouldn't have confessed the death of the Messiah. Now, so so that distinction, and so what Hunius is saying is that that is a that's a distinction between the Calvinists and the Lutherans. Did I get you right on that? I think that's close to it. That Hunius saw in Calvin uh, consistently throughout the traditional places in the Scriptures where we would say that these are prophecies that pertain to Christ, that foretold Christ, that gave Christian hope to the to the descendants of Abraham. Uh, that Calvin would have looked at these things and said, well, not so fast. Well, maybe it could be talking about Jesus, but there's another explanation that has to do with the immediate context of the preaching of this particular prophet that doesn't have anything to do with Christ. And uh, so I have a couple of examples. Yeah, yeah, like that's what I was going to ask. Give me some yeah. examples. Let's, let's get to the example. That'll be exciting. I was, well, let, let's do this. In Zechariah chapter 13. In Zechariah chapter 13, uh, you have the prophecy, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, Calvin, as Honeus points out, says that, and I'm quoting Calvin here, uh, almost all of us restrict this passage to the person of Christ because in Matthew chapter 26, that phrase is quoted. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But that reasoning does not appear to be solid, because what is said about the shepherd is, rather, to be extended to that whole order, and justifiably so. Just as when God says, I will raise up to you a prophet from your midst, certainly there mention is not being made of just one prophet, but God is including all prophets. As if you were to say, never will I leave you destitute of the doctrine of salvation. Indeed, I will demonstrate in every age that I govern your doings, because there will always be prophets by whose mouth I declare that I am near you. So look at this. In Zechariah chapter 13, uh, where St. Matthew says, hey, look, on Monday, Thursday night, Jesus is betrayed. He's taken prisoner in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what happens to the disciples? They flee. And this is just... As the prophet Zechariah says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, even with Matthew's words in mind, Calvin says, look, 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 look. We speak about this happening to Jesus in a very general sense, because in fact, the original statement had to do with the whole order of shepherds. Like, it's a general rule or a general sort of principle that if you strike a shepherd, sheep will scatter. So if there's a godly teacher, wherever that teacher is, or whatever he is saying, or whatever age he belongs to, uh, if he is uh, oppressed in some way, or persecuted in some way, his followers will flee. And so it's like a truism, almost. Do you kind of see uh, Calvin's point? It's a bit of a truism that this would be attributed to Jesus. It doesn't speak directly to Jesus, it just speaks to this sort of principle about... Uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, what might happen to godly shepherds in any time or place. So that's a, so that Zechariah was giving a generality, and then Matthew was the one who was making it specific. It seems to me like it would be better to read it the other way around. Zechariah was giving us a specific promise, 
and that maybe it has more general application if you want to, but that you start with the specific promise first, that you, you assume that it's pointing to Christ first. That's kind of your natural instinct when reading the Old Testament. Uh, but it's but Calvin is pushing the opposite direction. So first it's a broad principle, and then it gets applied to Christ. Yeah, right. A broad principle, but then it gets applied to Christ. But did you catch this in this quote from Calvin? In this quote from Calvin, not only does he cast sort of the natural way we would read Matthew chapter uh, 26 under the bus, but also in Deuteronomy, uh, 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 what is it, chapter 18 or 19? You know off the top of your head. Uh, the, the prophet like Moses. Yeah, 18, uh, yep. 18, thank you. So in Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, Moses uh, uh, says uh, the word of the Lord, saying, uh, I will raise up a prophet like you, and I will put my word into his mouth. Um, and uh, we take that normally to be a prophecy concerning Jesus, uh, that uh, Jesus is the prophet like Moses. And we could see how the imagery of Moses is being applied uh, to Jesus throughout the, the, the four Gospels, you know. So, uh, you know, Moses ascended up onto Mount Sinai to preach the law. Uh, Jesus uh, mounts up onto the Sermon on the Mount to preach an even harsher law than Moses, right? Uh, or how people expected from Moses manna from heaven. Uh, Jesus gives them the better bread, you know. So not only is he a prophet like Moses, he's a prophet greater than Moses. Uh, now, so we take that to, to speak concerning Jesus, but um, uh, uh, Calvin says, no, no, no. Instead of thinking that this has to do with Jesus, a prophet like Moses, we should probably see it as pertaining to all prophets everywhere, all prophets everywhere that have been ordained and sent out by God. Uh, that if they are true prophets, then they are like Moses. And, uh, and, and, so, and, and, and so if... Uh, and so Jesus, himself being a prophet, is just one among a whole order or a whole set of, of prophets. Uh, so, uh, um, I don't know. Uh, I, just running through the catalog of the scriptures in my head, I, I, this, this might actually be, uh, I don't know if you want to concede this point to Calvin, because uh, I'm trying to think, is there a direct, is there a promise in the New Testament uh, that Jesus fulfills Deuteronomy chapter 18? Well, I think the closest uh, that we get is the, the closest that we get is um, going to be both in the baptism, but especially the transfiguration, because that text mm -hmm. says, uh, "You shall listen to him," and that's exactly what God the Father says from the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration: "Hear him." So, right. so, so God the Father points to Jesus and says, "This is the one that you are waiting for, the the prophet like unto Moses." And and there's an I think a, a tip to that also in the conversation of the Pharisees with John the Baptist. Remember, are you the prophet? And he says, "I am not." I am not. Right. So that, and that even points to the fact that the Pharisees and John the Baptist had the understanding that that the prophet that was spoken of by Moses. Uh, had a singular referent that was going to fulfill that particular thing. I think we could we could go that far. Right. And that's Honeyus's point when he combats with uh, Calvin here, is he says, hey, look, God says clearly in the Scriptures uh, there will be a prophet, singular, like Moses. It's as plain as day in the singular, <laughs> in the singular uh, uh, use of the word prophet. Not the plural, I will send you prophets, but I will send you a prophet. What's and that's pretty much his entire argument against Calvin in that one point. Uh, okay. But concerning the rest of this, uh, 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 from Zechariah chapter 13, uh, uh, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Uh, Honeyus doubles down on how we listen to St. Matthew. How does St. Matthew preach the Old Testament? 
And he says that Matthew is the teacher. Uh, Matthew is the one who sets Zechariah before us as he ought to be read. So that we don't look at the words of Zechariah thinking to ourselves that, uh, uh, hey, we've got to exclude Christian evidence (laughs) as if... uh, uh, we have to exclude the possibility, first and foremost, that it could be talking about Jesus and try to restrict ourselves to a very narrow uh, 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 reading of, uh, of what Zechariah is saying. But he says, no, 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 no. Look, the Word of God is one. The Word of God is unified. Uh, and so if St. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that this verse means this concerning Jesus, then that's enough for us. We should, we should trust that uh, the Holy Spirit would not lie or lead us astray. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so that, uh, what, what? How do we say? So that, so that when Paul in Romans or or the book of Hebrews, Paul in Hebrews or or Matthew, when when they are quoting the Old Testament, they are taking it in its original sense. I mean, the way they they they're not they're not reading something into it later. They they are simply saying what in fact the prophets were saying, and that 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 needs to be the case because if the if the New Testament is taking and twisting the Scripture, then they're not actually arguing from the Old Testament. I mean, the, mm-hmm. part of the apologetic point of the apostles in the New Testament was to show the, the synagogue, the, the Jews, the Pharisees, and those who were around, the God-fearers, and so forth, was to show them that the Old Testament prophets spoke of Christ, and how much, how convincing would their argument be if, in fact, they were twisting and pouring in New Testament ideas into what was never there in the Old Testament. Yeah, right. Now, I think, so that was a mild example of some of the abuses that Calvin was responsible for. Uh, An even greater abuse that I found came from Micah chapter 5, the interpretation of Micah chapter 5 in the second verse. It's very famous Christmas verse uh, quoted again by St. Matthew, uh, uh, you know, where the wise men come to uh, Judea and they're looking for the baby Jesus to worship. Uh, they come to Herod's palace, and then Herod is troubled, and he asks of the scribes, uh, hey, where is the Christ, the Christ, uh, uh, the, the Messiah to be born? And so they quote to Herod from Micah chapter 5, uh, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Right? Uh, so, okay, Calvin says, fair enough, fair enough. I, see, I think that's pretty, pretty fair. Um, but the next part, Calvin will not allow uh, that it speaks about Jesus specifically. And that is, uh, who, uh, from, uh, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, from ancient days. Now, Christian interpreters over the centuries have looked at that back half of the verse, of Micah 5, 2, uh, uh, that talks about the coming forth of this ruler from ancient days as a testimony concerning the eternal generation of the Son of God. How Jesus, uh, 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 the pre-incarnate Christ, we should say, uh, is begotten of the Father from all eternity, just as we confess in the Creed. In fact, the Christian interpreters, like you said, in this uh, apologetic against the synagogue would go to verses like this to say, see, here, uh, the Messiah is in fact uh, sharing with the, uh, the attributes of God himself in eternity and being begotten of God from eternity. A uh, very similar place in the Old Testament where we might go to, uh, uh, to see a similar idea being uh, taught would be Proverbs chapter 8, how wisdom personified is 
uh, uh, flows from and is generated by God from uh, even before the foundations of the earth, right? Uh, that uh, uh, so also uh, we see that same language here in Micah chapter five. Uh, now Calvin says, now that is just one step too far. All right, Pastor, we, hold on. Let me hold. Let me stop you there because I think we got to go to the break before. So we're going to leave. Th- look at this is like a professional Monday night TV show putting the cliffhanger right before the break. What does Calvin say about Micah chapter 5? Nobody's going to ever want to tune out. <laughs> so we'll talk about that when we come back from the break. Uh, you're listening to Cross Defense of Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church, Aurora, Colorado. Pastor Brian Flammy of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, is joining us on the line to talk about Calvin, his reading of the Old Testament, how to rightly understand the prophets. We've got a short break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse 1. Each weekday, the servants of God at the LCMS International Center gather together to receive the gifts of God in His Word. I invite you to join us weekdays, 10 a.m., for a live broadcast of daily chapel services on KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Worldwide, KFUO Radio salutes our day sponsors on this Monday, May 21st, 2018. Today's day sponsors are Kyle and Robin Hansen. Today's day sponsors have made a contribution to Worldwide KFUO Radio in thanksgiving to the Lord as they celebrate their 42nd wedding anniversary. Once again, we say thank you to Kyle and Robin Hansen of Blue Mound, Kansas, today's Worldwide KFUO Day Sponsors. Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, is celebrated seven weeks after Passover, commemorating the first fruits of the harvest associated with the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. Taken from Leviticus 23 and Numbers 28, where two wheat loaves were offered in the tabernacle, representing the choicest fruits, an offering of thanks to God for Israel's bounty, a festival of first fruits. On the morning of the first day of Shavuot, many gather in the synagogue to read Exodus 19 and 20, which describes the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. All stand when the Ten Commandments are read, commemorating this important day in the Jewish tradition. Engage with the Bible in its celebrations and commemorations over the centuries. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Welcome back to Cross Defense. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, host of uh, Cross Defense, which is this show, which is what I'm doing. <laughs> Master of the obvious. I'm, Pastor Flam is here. He has brought this. I don't know. You, now, you guys are listening and you're thinking, Pastor Flammy, you shouldn't be so hard on the Calvinists. But I just want, I just want the listeners to know that the Calvinists actually like it when you're hard on them. I mean, they're used to it. If you, if you were to be friendly to a Calvinist, they would they would look at you funny. They wouldn't know what to make of it. I mean, they are so used to being mocked and dragged over the coals that I think they, they like... If It's like if you, if you have a theological complex where you like to be made fun of, you naturally become a Calvinist first because 
because everybody makes fun of you. So don't worry about the Calvinists. They're uh, they're used to it. Okay, so now Pastor Flammy was talking about how Calvin would read the Old Testament, and he would say that the Old Testament prophecies were talking about Jesus by extension, not by direct promise. Uh, and and uh, you you brought a Zechariah 13, uh, strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. But then he's going to do it also with the promise of Bethlehem from Micah chapter 2. And and um, just to remind everyone, since we have such short extension, attention spans, that, that has the promise that his going forth is from everlasting, so that Micah uh, chapter 5 has this riddle that the Messiah will be from Bethlehem and from eternity at the same time. And and you and you say how how can you be from Bethlehem and from eternity? And the answer is well you have to have two natures to do it. And so that's the the, the solution to the riddle. But then Calvin says something different, which I've got no idea. What so what does Calvin say? Well, Calvin simply says that hey look we can't convince the Jews that uh, the the Messiah who will be born in Bethlehem is also going to have a divine nature. He says they just won't accept it. And he says, since this confession will never be wrestled out of the Jews, I prefer simply to accept what the words of the prophets say, namely that the Christ is not to proceed from Bethlehem so suddenly, as if God had stated nothing about it. Therefore, his goings forth are from the beginning. That's it. That, hey, so this is it. It's a promise of the coming forth of the Messiah, but I'm saying it ahead of time. Therefore, when he finally does come, then the promise will be true. His coming forth will be from of old. Uh, it, and, and the reason for sort of turning his back on centuries and millennia of Christian interpretation of that verse of the Bible is basically because he doesn't think that uh, the Jews will accept it. Well, of course they would accept it. The fact that they are Jews is because they do not receive Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ who takes away their sins and the sin of the whole world. And so, uh, uh, Hanius, once again, uh, he, he does one of these things where he bats his eyes at, at what he's reading from, from uh, Calvin and says, are you guys seeing this? Are you seeing how, how, uh, how just because he thinks that he himself cannot make a certain argument from this one verse that he rejects what everybody, all the other Christians, say that this is saying about the divine nature of Christ? Uh, by the way, I really liked how you talked about the riddle and setting it up like that. It is a riddle. Uh, to say that the Messiah will be uh, 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 born in Bethlehem, but his uh, coming forth will be from of old, uh, it speaks to both the, eter- uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the eternal nature of, of, uh, of the divinity and also of the temporal nature of the humanity and how those are bound up together uh, in the person who is Jesus. So that was really I, nice. I think that is one of the chief things that the prophets are doing in the Old Testament is they're they are putting forth these, again, what look like riddles, but they can only be answered by the Incarnation. So Jesus does it on that Holy Tuesday preaching when he quotes Psalm 110, who, whose son is the Messiah? They all say, David's son. He says, well, how can David call his son his Lord? In Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand till I put your kingdoms under your feet. And they don't know what to do because they can't, un- they can't unravel the riddle because they don't know the Incarnation. But that's the whole thing that it's pointing to. It's just... That's fantastic. Now, I so okay, I, so let's let's put a bow on this and move to the thing that I want to talk to you about, which is related. Actually, I got an email this morning, and I want to hear your thoughts on it. But to put a bow on on what you're talking about, so that um, could it could I say is this going too far, Pastor Flammy? This, by the way, Pastor Flammy and I used to be co-laborers here at Hope Lutheran Church, 
and this would be our conversation every day, I would say, is this going too far? And he would say, yes. But uh, so we're, let's see if this is going to hold out this way, too. Uh, is this going too far to say that the modern evangelical way of reading the Old Testament, which is devoid of direct promises of Christ, devoid of direct references to the unique theology of the Christian uh, doctrine, that that finds its source, or at least it finds a strong supporter in John Calvin. Yes, and I'll tell you why. Uh, it is in the academic literature everywhere uh, that the difference between Luther and Calvin when it came to reading the Old Testament is that Luther is an anti-Semite, whereas Calvin uh, is not. And here's the reason why. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, Eve says, uh, uh, behold, I have, uh, or she says, uh, behold, you know, uh, the man Yahweh. And Luther says, here it is. Eve was so excited for the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 that her seed will be God in the flesh to crush the works of Satan, that even as her first child is born, she's holding up Cain and saying, this must be it, the Messiah, my Savior. And Luther maintains this throughout his life. I think he first asserts this in 1524, and even up to the end of his life, uh, uh, Luther will not back off of this position. Now, the critical scholarship sees Luther doing this, and they say that what Luther is doing in asserting uh, uh, the Christ in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, is anti-Jewish. It's anti-Jewish. It disrespects uh, the, the contemporary worship of the synagogue, that, uh, uh, that, that refuses to acknowledge the deity of Christ in their scriptures, or, or, you know, the, or, the, uh, or, or that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the Messiah. And, and by saying that these places, these, these, uh, 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 these well-known places in the scriptures are actually speaking about Jesus, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered and died uh, for us on, on, on Golgotha, uh, that it is an attack upon Jews. Now, the critical scholarship will say uh, that is why we are pleased to follow Calvin in his exegesis of the Old Testament, who for whatever reason, and I'm not even sure of the reason, will not read the direct promises about Christ in the same way as Luther would. Calvin would look at these same passages of the scriptures, like Genesis 4.1, and say, I know what Luther said, but uh, really, is it really talking about Jesus? Is that oath, that, uh, that Aleph uh, Tau, really a direct object marker as Luther insists? <laughs> and Calvin says, I, I just don't think there's enough here for me to say so. And so I'm not going to hold this over the Jews' heads and say, here is, your, here is Jesus in the Old Testament. I can't do it. I'm not going to huh. use this in apologetics amazing. against the Jews. That's amazing. That, now, this is, okay, now just again, you who are listening, you're, you're getting nervous. You're like, man. Are you sure you don't? You should be that mean to the Calvinists. I'm telling you, don't worry. They love it. Now, to, keeping this in mind, so don't, no, you can't complain we're being too mean on the Calvinists because no Calvinists ever complain about that. I'm, t I'm serious. Go find one and ask them if they've ever complained about it. Now, uh, I want to ask you this question because I, I got an email from Charlotte this morning, Pastor Flemmy, and it says this, and, I wanna, and it has to do exactly with what you're talking about. It says, uh, Dear Pastor, how did the Holy Spirit work faith in those in the Old Testament. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So the que- so so now this is a question about the Old Testament, but especially the Old Testament people. How was it that the Lord was working faith in it? And maybe even to what we're talking about here, what was the faith that the Lord was working in those people? What do you, you got any thoughts on that? I do. But you know who has better thoughts about this is David Critaeus, the old Orthodox Lutheran theologian. Man, you are dusting off the... Hey, oh, before... That's right. If people are interested in this Hunias stuff, where would they find that in the world? Is there a book that you Uh, checked out of some Uh, library or something? uh, So uh, Pastor Reideke translated it. Uh, It is called The Judaizing Calvin, and uh, it's published by Repristination Press. And so if you Google those things, I guarantee that that will show up, along with other works that have been translated by uh, Aegidius Hunnius. Uh, and he was, by the way, unquestionably an Orthodox Lutheran teacher and well-respected by all of the Lutheran Orthodox teachers that followed after him. Um, right, anyways, so we need to get back to this next, uh, uh, this next question. What, how did the saints of the Old Testament have faith? Where did their faith come from? And uh, I, I have in here a beautiful, uh, a, a beautiful quote from Critias, which I'm not finding because I didn't have it prepped ahead of time. But I'll just say this, uh, that uh, uh, according to Critias, as he is making a study of the book of Leviticus and sacrifice, uh, Critias says that sometimes we forget that the book of Leviticus is a manual for sacrifice. It is instructions to the people of God and to the priests as to the precise nature of how the sacrifices were to be carried out. But we dare not think that Leviticus ought to be understood in isolation from the rest of the Torah or the preaching of Moses. That in fact, as the sacrifices in the tabernacle and later at the temple were taking place, the priest's first and primary job was to preach, to preach (laughs) God's gospel, uh, the promises of Christ. And, and so you can see it, that as they are receiving sacrifices from the hands of the saints, and as they were leading sacrifices, the victims, up to the altar to slay them, the whole time they are, they are preaching the seed, the seed of the woman will come to crush the serpent's head as they slit the animal's throat and blood comes out. Uh, so this is, the kind of, uh, this, this is the kind of preaching that the Lutherans have about faith of the Old Testament. And I think, I think that it's right. Because if you look at the Psalms, I was having an argument with some other pastors about this uh, two weeks ago. Uh, because if you look at the Psalms... Wait, wait, wait. Uh, pastors have arguments wait. about this stuff? Yeah, I know, right? Okay. Uh, if, you look, if you look at the Psalms, uh, it's undeniable that they, the Psalms speak it, uh, 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 with, uh, uh, about the promises of Christ. I mean, we ought to look at the Psalter as sort of... Uh, a catalog of promises of who Jesus is and what he will do, and the theology uh, that Jesus preaches and that he embodies. And it is bound up verse by verse with uh, uh, the language of sacrifice, with the language of sacrifice. Uh, A great example of this is just to meditate on uh, uh, David's famous penitential psalm, uh, Psalm uh, 51, you know, about how, how, how uh, how David does not think to himself that I can go and make a sacrifice, and by the, uh, by the mere doing of the act, this will propitiate God, right? Instead, uh, what David knows is that what God truly desires is a contrite spirit and a broken heart, uh, a knowledge of one's sin. 
but not just the knowledge of one's sin that comes through Nathan's preaching of the law against David, right? But also a knowledge and certain and knowledge and certainty of salvation, of 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 God, the mercy that God will pour out upon the world through His Christ. You know. Uh, so, anyways, uh, uh, I, I wish I could find the Cretaceous quote. No, no, I think it's fantastic. I mean, this because it's the idea that you know we read through the Old Testament. It's like you know they're just killing animals all over the place. But so what? But the but the point there is that those that those animals preach, and that the priests are actually there preaching while they're killing the animals, and they're saying, "Look, you are the one who sinned, and you should have died." I mean, sin brings death, but the Lord is accepting the death of this animal. In, in your place. I mean, this animal didn't point. do anything wrong, but, but it's dying for you, and that's a preaching of the gospel. Yeah, so this is it. So this is what Critias writes. He says, The priests were to expound to the people the law of God and the promises concerning Christ, rightly interpret the sacrifices as types and representations of the sacrifice of the Messiah, by which alone the sins of the human race would be expiated. Explain the services of discipline and gratitude owed to God and the ministry, and learn and disseminate all the skills necessary for elucidating heavenly doctrine and guiding the church. They had to, uh, and then he goes on to talk about some of the other duties of the priests. And, and, and if you think to yourselves, uh, how is it that priests are to preach? What are you talking about? He quotes from Malachi chapter 2, uh, where Malachi talks about the priest's lips. He says, the priest's lips keep knowledge. And they shall seek God's doctrine at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Very nice. So we could put a, we could put a bow on this, too, and say, well, look, we, the people of the Old Testament believe in the same way that the people in the New Testament believe, that is, by hearing. How can they believe unless they have been preached to? And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And, and Pastor Flamey, not only that. But that the, not only did the people believe in the same way through hearing the preaching of the prophets and the apostles, but they believed the same stuff. Peter says yeah, in Acts chapter 10, yeah, Peter says, Acts chapter 10, that all the people believed, that all the prophets preached that forgiveness of sins would come through his name. So the death, the suffering, death, resurrection of the Messiah won the forgiveness of sins. Ah, we're clock's going to kill us, Pastor Flamin. We've got two minutes. How, do you guys have a website down there that people can uh, check out the stuff you're working on or they can... I know they can follow you on the Facebook because you probably put that Christeus quote on your Facebook page. Yes, I did. <laughs> uh, yeah, just become friends with me on Facebook, I guess. Uh, let me see. Uh, if I, uh, our, we do have a website down here. Just Google Emmanuel Luther Church, Roswell, New Mexico, and it will show right up. We have a, a church uh, that preaches the gospel of Christ, the promises that save us from sin and death. And we also have a classical Lutheran school. Where in that classical Lutheran school, we're not ashamed of preaching and teaching uh, the gospel to uh, all the people in the community who want to send our kids here. They get a matin service every day. It's beautiful. Thanks uh, for being on the so, show, Pastor Fleming. We appreciate your voice, yeah. your wisdom, uh, your insight, your passion. It's fa absolutely fantastic. Pastor Brian Flamey of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. And I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado on Cross Defense. Come to you. Every Monday afternoon, talking about the joy of theology. There is nothing, there's nothing better than the word of Christ. And that word was preached by the prophets. It's preached by the apostles. It's brought to you in the scripture so that you might believe it and have life in his name. That's what John says. These things are written so that you might have life in the name of Jesus. And dear saints, that life in the name of Jesus is a life 
that never ends. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week on Cross Defense. Listening to Cross Defense, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314 996 1518. Or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at KFUO.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.